my family did I am not the voices in my head I am not the pieces of the brokenness inside I am light I am light Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Being Inspired Radio Show. I am Amanda Johnson, your host, and I am continuing something I started um, an in an episode previously where I am reading my book, Becoming Enough, A Heroine's Journey to the Already Perfect Self. I got this idea actually listening to another podcast where the woman read a portion of the book and of course, and I am preparing to record an audiobook version and I thought, why not record it in snippets and share it with all of you? It's a pleasure for me to do that and it's an opportunity for you to get to know a little bit more about this book that chose me to be its author. And I really do see it that way. So today I, I have, in the previous episode, I read the preface and introduction, and I will continue today with part one, the call. You do not become good by trying to be good, but by finding the goodness that is already within you and allowing that goodness to emerge. Eckhart Tolle. Chapter 1. Opening the Door Some of my earliest memories are of feeling left out, cast aside, unwanted. No, I wasn't abused or abandoned or mistreated. I was a healthy, well-loved, well-taken-care-of little girl. This is the power of story. The story of a three-year-old in the bathtub crying as her siblings splash around laughing in the pool out back. A five-year-old being told jokingly by her siblings on the way to their grandparents for Christmas that she is adopted. A seven-year-old waking up to get a drink of water and finding her family out in the kitchen having a pizza party without her. A lifetime of being called the oopsie baby. These stories, which are not at all accurate, but simply how my mind has chosen to remember them, quickly turned themselves into a deep wound I would carry with me for more than 30 years. These became the things I would point to, either consciously or subconsciously, as an example of how I am unlovable. The seed was planted, the seed of unworthiness, separation, and doubt, and I would spend more than 30 years doing whatever it takes to make sure I am good enough to be loved. I can see the picture vividly a little girl of about two years old with her cute curled pigtails, dark hair and dark eyes shining brightly. Wearing her little blue and red polka dotted dress, she is full of hope, full of anticipation for what life will bring, full of light and love for everything around her. She is whole and complete with her chubby little arms and legs and her round pink cheeks. She is love. She is fearless. She is limitless. She is enough. This little girl grows up. Along the way, she begins to adopt stories as reality. She learns from others that there are limitations, things to fear, ways to behave, ways not to behave, what is lovable and what is unlovable. She loses touch with that which she once was. She forgets who she is. She dims the light that was once in her eyes. For who is she to shine so brightly? She begins to doubt, compare, and strive. 
She starts to go through life looking to others to tell her how pretty she is, how smart she is, how good she is. She no longer knows intuitively what Wordsworth so poetically expressed. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come, from God, who is our home. At a very young age, I created a story that I was unwanted, unlovable, and not good enough. This tale is not unique. Each one of us has our own version of this story, our own story that taught us how we are not enough, our own experience of separation that created the first and deepest wound of feeling unloved. Many of us then spend years or an entire lifetime attempting to recover what we thought was lost, to repair what we thought was broken, and to take whatever precaution necessary to protect ourselves from ever feeling unloved again. Most of us are inundated with self-help and self-improvement and think, if I just find the missing piece or figure out my problem or join this class or get the certification or have the relationship or lose the weight or fix the neuroses, then I will be okay. But what we don't realize is that we are missing a crucial step that is keeping us in our loop of suffering. We are ignoring a truth that prevents us from ever feeling loved and reaching the level of joy and okayness we are seeking through all these other means. My life was fairly ordinary. Sometimes I use the word boring to describe it. Others might say simple, as in not complicated. I grew up the youngest of four in a middle-class family in middle America. My three siblings and I were all raised by two parents who are still married to this day. I got good grades, excelled in extracurricular activities, went to college, got married, and made my way into a corporate job. I experienced no trauma or life-changing events like others I knew. And I judged myself for this. Why was I having such a hard time with life? I hadn't lost my brother to a tragic train accident. I wasn't battling a life-threatening disease. I didn't lose a parent at a young age, either through divorce or death. I wasn't beaten or abused or raised in an environment of addiction. What was wrong with me? Why was I suffering so much? Why couldn't I just figure it out? My problem seemed so petty, yet all I could do was think about how life was so difficult. Why couldn't it be easier? Why did it have to be seem so hard? Obviously, I must be doing something wrong. I convinced myself the only way I would feel loved and good enough was if I did things their way. Maybe not consciously, but in everything I did, from striving to get good grades to saying yes to the man who proposed to me. As a freshman in high school, I came home with straight A's on my report card, anxious to receive adoration and praise from my parents. Instead, I would hear them say, as long as you do your best, we're proud of you. I remember thinking, how dare they? Don't they realize how important it is that I get straight A's? Don't they get that my best isn't good enough? Don't they know how much I am longing to hear them say, wow, Amanda, that's amazing. You are so smart. You just proved how lovable you truly are. The funny thing is, I imagine most people would be thrilled to have parents say what mine said. Yet, it wasn't enough for me. Spending my entire life believing I am not enough means that what others do or say is equally never enough. I didn't want to hear that all I had to do was do my best. 
After all, getting those straight A's was easy. I could definitely have worked harder. I could have spent more time studying. I could have learned the material better. I could have gone the extra mile, whatever the extra mile even means. I chose not to hear what they were really saying. Amanda, no matter what you do, we are proud of you. We will always love you. Instead, I thought I needed to hear, Amanda, by meeting our expectations via these external representations of success, you are worthy of our love. My heart aches for that 15-year-old who didn't yet realize her own brilliance, but needed to hear it from someone else or receive it through a letter on a report card. A girl who couldn't trust that her best truly was good enough, just like her parents said. Even as a little kid, I tuned into the social directives to work harder, study more, and reach your full potential. I witnessed time after time how hard work pays off and that there is always room for improvement. I bought into this hook, line, and sinker. I figured if I didn't try hard enough, I wasn't good enough. If I wasn't good enough, I wasn't lovable. And good enough needed to be damn well near perfect. Recently, I have started labeling myself an unwitting overachiever. I know plenty of overachievers, and according to me, I am not one of those people. Those people do so much. They work so hard, achieve great feats, make lots of money, run successful businesses, volunteer, and serve on boards. They spend more time on their passions than I do. They work hard at achieving their dreams. On the contrary, I feel like I am never doing enough. Even as I recount tales of my childhood, I find myself diminishing all the activities I did well and eventually stopped doing. I minimize being a good test taker or not having to try hard at school. Time and time again, I find myself thinking if it came easily or if I was a natural at it, then I wasn't trying hard enough. As if my natural abilities, who I am at my core, simply aren't enough. My standard of enough has been quite skewed my entire life. By the time I got to high school, I read self-help book after self-help book because I most certainly was in need of help. This went on for over a decade. I read about how we lie to ourselves, how not to sweat the small stuff, and how to be happy while not being perfect. Still, I was doing something wrong. How hard did I have to try? How much more of myself did I need to fix? How many more books would I need to read before I was okay? It would be many more years before I was offered relief, but this was the start of no return. These books, and everything else I was doing to better myself, were the beginning of the unraveling, the beginning of receiving my call to adventure, the journey to becoming enough. The journey wasn't about trying harder, doing more, or being better. It was about revealing my true self by trusting I am enough. Each of us hear this invitation to the journey at one point or another in our lives. It is the knowing that there is something else, something we have forgotten or put aside, something to rediscover. Many of us misinterpret this as the quest for something more or better. This is how it started for me. I felt there was something lacking or missing in my life. I felt the need to improve things and believed that the only way to discover my true essence was by looking to others for the answers. The invitation came multiple times, not with a bang, but a whimper. The true self has a way of being quiet and patient. I experienced an uneasiness in my being that kept telling me there had to be another way. This couldn't be it. 
another way that didn't require me trying harder or doing even more. I had tried that to no avail. The adventure awaiting me was the discovery of my already whole and complete self. It was the journey to unlearn everything I had previously learned and adopted as truth. The first time this soft voice tries to get my attention, I am 19 years old. A theater major in college, I spend the winter auditioning for acting conservatories around the country. I plan to take my future acting career to the next level and receive my enoughness from my auditors. One day in March, I receive what I have been waiting for. An acceptance letter from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City. Here I am, just about to complete my freshman year of college at a small liberal arts school in a small Midwest town, and I have the opportunity to pursue my dream of becoming a professional actor and move to the Big Apple. After months of making plans and getting excited that my dream is becoming a reality, I find myself sitting at a local eatery with my best friend and making the hardest decision of my life. I choose to listen to my parents and mentors and deny the acceptance in order to finish college. Out of a desire to do the right thing and receive their blessing, I reject the call. I ignore that inner whisper that says, I will be okay. Instead, I listen to the fears that I won't make it, can't afford it, and will never find a real job if I don't get my college degree. I do what any good girl does and finishes college magna cum laude, all while being engaged to get married. A couple of years later, I receive the persistent nudge again. This time, that soft, quiet voice within says, You don't want to marry this man. I am brave enough to tell this to my father, who, to my surprise, immediately gives me his blessing to call off the wedding. This time it isn't his validation I want. It is the guests, my future husband, and my future in-laws that I desire to please. I allow the thoughts of what will people think and what about the money we spent to fill my mind. I once again allow the fear of doing the right thing, make the decision for me, and walk me down the aisle. This was yet another rejection of that quiet summons to adventure, to trust that I am safe no matter what. It is not until I am 24 years old, working as an actor and living in Oakland, California with Scott, my husband of three years, when the whisper gets a bit louder. This marriage isn't working. This time the voice is too loud to ignore even though I try. I spend months feeling split in two at the thought of getting a divorce. That isn't something someone like me does. It's not acceptable, certainly not in my family. The idea alone makes my stomach churn, imagining how my family will react. What will my grandma say? Will my cousins ever speak to me again? Will I be the outcast of the family? Not to mention how his family will feel. The thought of what might happen and what people think terrifies me. So we try to make it work. I give it another chance. I deny my true knowing. For another few months, I weep and I feel like I am being torn apart from the inside out. I get angry with God and wonder where he is in all this. I pray and write and explore my feelings. To the best of my knowledge, I am the first of my entire extended family to end a marriage. Thoughts of letting people down, looking bad, being one of those divorcees, hurting Scott, run rampant. After months of agonizing, 
I make my decision. I want a divorce. I feel as if I am dishonoring my husband, my family, and God all at the same time. But the knock at the door is too loud. I do what I trust is best for me, no matter what others might think and no matter how wrong it might be. The decision to get a divorce starts the unraveling of my need to seek my enoughness from the external world, from my parents, my husband, an audience, a job. I trusted that quiet voice within for one of the first times in my life and did what I thought was best for me, no matter the consequence. And guess what? I didn't die, and no one else did either. I discovered that my imagination is far worse than reality when it comes to how people might respond. I opened the door to learning the greatest lesson of my life. I am always okay. Yet, even though the door has been opened, I am not ready to walk through. I am not ready to let go of what I still believe to be true, that I am broken and need to be fixed. How in the world can I be all right when I don't like who I am? How can I be at peace with myself if I still have such a long way to go? How can I trust myself when there is still so much to improve? For most of my life, everything told me, you're not okay the way you are. You're only good if you do things the right way. You need to be different, better, smarter, faster, and try harder. So even though I listened once, there will be many more years of rejection before my soul's request is fully accepted. For now, I still see myself as imperfect and untrustworthy. I still need others to tell me what to do, how to live, and how good I am. The following years serve as a training ground for me to experience what is ultimately holding me back and has me stuck in this loop. I continue to reject the call time and time again. I reject it looking for the fix, the thing that will make me good, whole, and complete, whether it be the next book, spiritual path, boyfriend, job, or diet. I reject it by continuing to seek approval and validation of my goodness, my enoughness, from a voice that is not my own. My primary way to distract myself from my soul's truth is with men and relationships, placing my worth and wholeness in what he thinks of me or how I perceive myself when I am with him. So I look for it from my boyfriend, the guy at the bar, or the guy online. Before the ink is even dry on the divorce papers, I find my way into another partnership that will last nearly six years. I know immediately this guy is different. Early on in the relationship, I learned that one of Daniel's favorite phrases is, you're good in and of yourself. I desperately want to believe him. I admire him for seeing life this way. Yet the hair on the back of my neck bristles every time he says it. It is the very thing I am running away from, the last thing I want to hear. It goes against everything I have spent my entire life believing. I can't inherently be good. I've got to kick, punch, and scream my way to being good. Daniel encourages me to find my worth and validation within. He doesn't want to give in to my demands to be the one to validate me. Oftentimes, he flat out refuses. I see this as unkind and unloving, as if he doesn't care about me. I get upset and throw plates and tantrums when he makes me feel bad about myself or not good enough. I storm down the street in a huff, burst into tears, blame him for why I'm so upset. He simply doesn't love me the way I want him to, which is a total setup for him since I don't yet love myself that way. Even though he sees me as good in and of myself, I refuse to accept it. 
While hiking together along the 2,200 miles of the Appalachian Trail, there are many times I refuse to adopt the way he sees me. On the third day of hiking, we are going down the rocks of Blood Mountain. There are little weathered steps all over its face, so you can go down many different ways. I go down very hesitantly and with great focus and concern. When I reach the bottom, I turn around and watch Daniel just hop down a completely different way than I did. I get angry. I raise my voice and say in a very agitated tone, if you're going to go down a different way than me, you should at least have the decency to tell me. When it came to hiking, I looked at Daniel as more in the know, as more right. So the fact that he went down another way was drawing attention to my being wrong. But there's no right way to step down from a stone ledge. I was down. I was right too. But I couldn't see that I was already good with the choice I made. I eventually end the relationship and keep resisting and searching for why I am the way I am and what I can do to fix it and make me more loving, more hardworking, less irritating, and less anxious. There is always something to improve, something to fix. I reject the call by picking up yet one more self-help book that has the answer for why I am highly sensitive, why I am a perfectionist, why I have a hard time committing to things, and what I can do about it. It is no wonder I continue to reject the undertaking to trust myself and listen to that voice within. The beliefs that I have carried from a very young age serve me well and keep me safe, or so I think. For as long as I can remember, I feel enough when concealed behind my perfectionism, doubt, and comparison. I have all these strategies that are well-formed and, up until now, seemingly quite effective. When I do things just right, I am rewarded. When I second-guess myself and do it the way they do it, I am rewarded. Why would I do it differently? That is what we are up against when we hear the plea. The voice within that says, there's got to be another way. The quiet voice that sounds like truth, but we are too afraid to follow it. We are up against a lot. We are up against having to stare our fear in the face without our layers of protection. Still, through all my rejection over the course of these years, the appeal keeps at it. I get tired of the endless dating or the endless drama of only feeling good enough when I have someone return my texts or tell me how pretty I am, or the endless seeking for what is wrong with me and how I can fix it. I am ready for another way. I am guided to pick up books on Buddhism, nudged to seek out atheism and evolutionary biology. I stumble across more spiritually-minded people and am gently guided to what will eventually bring me back to myself. I make deep friendships with women for the first time in my life. I start seeing myself as separate from the guy I date, or the job I have, or the city in which I live. I begin to reveal how all my beliefs and strategies start from a place of judgment. Right versus wrong, good versus bad, needing to be more or less. None of it just is. In the months to follow, I have a lot of judgment to clear away before I am able to hear my soul's request again and, this time, accept it wholeheartedly. For the first time in my life, it dawns on me that judgment is what is keeping me from accepting the charge of feeling enough. The judgment I have of myself, of the world, 
and of others. Judgment that comes in the form of the shield of perfectionism, the mask of doubt, and the cloak of comparison. And there you have it, friends. Chapter one from my book, Becoming Enough, A Heroine's Journey to the Already Perfect Self. I will continue with the rest of part one. So feel free to tune in or continue listening to hear the rest. And of course, you can purchase the book on Amazon, either paperback or Kindle version. I'll put the link in the show notes. Or you can simply Google Amazon Becoming Enough, and it should be one of the first hits that appears. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in to hear something that means so very much to me and for helping to be a part of this ripple effect of spreading the message of becoming enough, knowing that who you already are is perfect, whole, and complete. Until next time, peace and blessings.